gaming is an opportunity to hopefully leave enough of the real world behind for a brief period of time. We saw a lot of people who were changing their careers, who wanted to start businesses. Let them meet together. Let them experience the in-person stuff. I'm Richard Gerhart. And I'm Elizabeth Gerhart. You've just heard some snippets from our show. Now, this was a really fun one, so stay tuned. Want to patent your invention? The chance is near. You've given it heart. Now get it in gear. It's Passage to Profit with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. I'm Richard Gearhart, founder of Gearhart Law, full service intellectual property law firm. And I'm Elizabeth Gearhart, not a lawyer, but I work at Gearhart Law doing the marketing and I have my own startup. Welcome to Passage to Profit, everyone. The show that's all about entrepreneurship, small businesses, and the intellectual property that helps them flourish. We have a really special guest and I'm really looking forward to talking with him. It's Brian Hirsch, and he has just invented a plethora of games that you've probably played dozens and dozens of times. And then we have a pair of brilliant brothers. They're twins, and they have been active in the entrepreneurial world for many years. Right now, they are working on a new company called School 16 that they're going to talk about, but they'll also give us their knowledge about investing and teaching at NYU and things like that. Well, that's great. But before we get to our distinguished guests, it's time for guess what? IP in the news, a case that Gerhardt Law was involved in called BNIC versus Cologne and Cognac. And our client held a trademark registration, including a logo for the words Cologne and Cognac. What kind of business was Cologne and Cognac? They were a record label. Okay. And so <laughs> our client is Trav Torch and he's published like three CDs and he's kind of got this very white groove going for him. And uh, he named his company Cologne and Cognac. And well, you he... didn't tell me he sounds like very white. He's like very deep voice. Okay. And so he went and he filed his own trademark registration. And after the trademark got allowed, the BNIC company or group, the group that represents all the cognac makers in France, filed to have his trademark removed from the register. Because they thought people were going to drink CDs. (laughs) (laughs) Or they thought that somebody was going to walk into a liquor store and ask for... A cologne and cognac record or something. Anyway, they thought that people would be confused between the actual liquor cognac and his record label. There are some interesting legal issues in the case, but it turned out that our client won. Now they're all upset about this because it creates a precedent for other cognac cases. And Cognac is a designation mark. It means that it designates where a particular product was made or grown by a particular process. So champagne, for example, is not a trademark, but it's a designation of origin mark because champagne is grown in the region of France called champagne. And the same thing with cognac. In order to be able to call something cognac, you have to make it by a certain process and using certain things that can only be found in France. So that said, now they have a case on the books that says these designation marks are not famous in a legal sense. And so now they're all upset about it. And they've hired some really Tony lawyers from Washington, D.C. to represent them. And we're expecting the group that markets champagne and the trade association there to get involved. Our client is a policeman, New Jersey. And, you know, he throws parties and he advertises his parties by nailing flyers to telephone poles. And now he's got the whole liquor world on him 
because he filed a trademark. But what's weird is that you can buy a dress, not that you would, but I would buy a dress that is the color champagne. Right. So they do use champagne for other things besides the actual alcoholic drink. Absolutely. So and this is kind of the same thing. So I don't know. In some cases, it's the lawyering. But in this case, it's pretty straightforward, in my opinion. It's different kinds of goods. It travels in different channels of commerce. All of the things that make for a trademark infringement suit. I thought this was kind of a bad hill for the Cognac Association to die on because the mark was so different. And it's just too many differences. And they decided to take a shot, I guess, because they thought Crab would be an easy target. And it turned out that he won. Very Way happy about that. Anyway, it's time for Richard's Roundtable. And I would like to ask our guests to comment on this. Brian. I'll jump in just because I find it very odd. The notion that as I'm driving around listening to a CD from this company, that my first inclination would be to dab a little cognac on just in case I get pulled over by a policeman. I just am not sure where this is going. I know it's amazing, but conceivably this is a case. I know this sounds weird, but conceivably a case that could go to the Supreme Court because there's another case out there in a different part of the country that decided that these marks were entitled to be termed famous in the legal sense. And therefore, if the circuit court that we're in decides differently, then it could go up to the Supreme Court, which I think is also amazing. So mm -hmm. I probably would get really, really nervous there, I think. So anyway, <laughs> Sergey and Vadim, what are your thoughts? I'm actually curious, Richard, uh, how these organizations choose who they go after, because I can tell you, we were born in the former Soviet Union. Cognac is a very popular beverage there. And I don't think anybody's enforcing any trademarks there because it's called Cognac. I'm very certain it's not actually sourced from France. Uh, and so I'm just curious how they choose who to go after, because I'm sure these infringements happen in a more direct way in other places. You know, that's really helpful for our case. Would you be willing to <laughs> sign a declaration? No, <laughs> I'm not going against the, <laughs> the Russian government here. <laughs> no, that's actually, that's interesting. And I, I, I think you're right. To the extent it's enforced outside the U.S. is a, a very interesting question. And I, I don't really know the answer to that. But I suspect that there's a lot of off-label cognac being sold, probably even in the United States. It seems like there, there's a litmus test that, that inevitably comes down to whether or not it's worth prosecuting, whether or not it's worth chasing an individual or a small group whose impact is minimal while obligated to protect your mark, you know, do you really want to go after every single little guy? I've been knocked off so many times in so many countries and so many places. You have to pick and choose, I guess. Yeah. If you were making cognac, I would get that. But he wasn't. He was singing like Barry White. So Vadim, do you have thoughts on this? Yeah, I do. Thank you. I tend to agree with what's being said about the fact that it's a different product category, and that's going to make it a very difficult case. Actually, Sergey and I have had experience with other companies advertising using our name, uh, but it was another education company. And so in this case, we would report the the ad and it would get taken down very quickly. So there's, there's not much wiggle room in that type of scenario. But here, where it's a different product category, you know that the record doesn't come from uh, that part of France, right? So it's not even a point of confusion. <laughs> right. Like we're all going, what's the connection here? Right? Like, yeah. It's like Delta Dental and Delta Airlines. Nobody gets those two confused. They know one is a dental company and the other one is an airline. So, And they're both the source of pain. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> well, I don't think I can top that one. So we might as well just move right to uh, Mr. Hirsch. Brian Hirsch is the founder of Hirsch Games, and he's done a lot of fun stuff over the years. Brian, I, I wish I had your job for sure, playing around all the time. And he's the uh, founder of these brands, which have been distributed by Mattel and Hasbro. So some pretty big names here, Taboo, Outburst, uh, Malarkey, Scategories, and over 40 other games. And so it's an honor to have you on the program. Brian, we were going to start out with you talking about kind of the psychology behind this. In the world of games, I think we have to put gaming in a context. Gaming is an opportunity to hopefully leave enough of the real world behind for a brief period of time. What I make is lubrication for rusty social skills. People <laughs> need just a little assist in socializing, in being able to interact with each other, of finding our commonality. And so to the extent that we can play a game together, whether I'm good at giving words and getting you to guess them, or you're good at drawing pictures, it really doesn't matter. We're, we're sharing an experience. We're sharing an, a, a moment. So what I'm building when I build games is I really am trying to lubricate the experience. I'm trying to give it some ease. That's a key component to what social gaming is about. And I, I really haven't built kids games. I've really been focused on games for adults because they need the most help. <laughs> and so over the years, I'm, you know, it it's just been this experience and, and it's a business. It, you know, I I, I can't help but note, Richard, your comment, which strikes home about, because I, I hear it all the time, oh, you must have so much fun with what you do. Yes, I do, but don't ever forget, it's a business. If all you think is that it's playtime, well, recess comes to an end. And it's critically important to attend to the business side of being in a form of entertainment. My brother and I were real estate developers. We have projects in different states. I, I had a very good career, but somebody said, you're a creative guy. You love Trivial Pursuit. You're good at it. You could probably invent a game. So I basically decided to think about it, but I did what a business guy does. I did a market research report to understand the game business, adult games as a niche, and specifically Trivial Pursuit. And my takeaway from reading a big, thick marketing report in a leather binder, which means I overpaid for it. <laughs> um, was that the big game companies weren't getting the message. They looked and said, everyone wants trivia. So we'll do the Life Magazine trivia game, the, the TV Guide trivia game. None of those sold. It was just about an entire generation returning to its game playing roots. And if you think about when this was, this was the mid 80s when Trivial Pursuit came out. Terrible inflation, it, which we can relate to. Interest rates were as high as 18%. And people were stuck at home. Um, they were cocooning with friends. Uh, you know, buy an expensive game that's made and has quality and enjoy an evening sitting around and playing. You don't have to go out. That was the essence of what was happening. But the buyers of that game were baby boomers. We grew up playing Clue and Risk and Monopoly. We grew up with this new medium called television that was full of game shows. So we were predisposed to playing games. You know, Parker Brothers, Milton Bradley, they stood on the dock and they waved goodbye with a tear in their eye because they had no reason to think that all those kids who had been buying games would ever come back as adults. 
But my parents' generation was a card-playing generation. You know, they took a deck of cards and that entertained a whole family during the Depression. They took that to war with them. And sure enough, when they got older, they went back and kept playing gin and casino and all those card games. Well, we came back and started playing social games. We played board games. And that was the opportunity that I was stepping into. I had an unfair advantage. I knew how to read a contract. I was in business. The average guy who's got an idea for a game says, oh, it's a couple pieces of paper. I'll cut them up. I'll make a board that looks like Monopoly. I'm in business. It's a long way from there to success. But if you don't take the first step, you never are going to get there. There's a lot of trial and error. There's a lot of misplaced trust. There's a lot of great games that failed. There's a lot of good games that succeeded. There's a lot of bad games that had something special for a minute. You have to have a feel for the audience, a feel for the business side. What does it cost? What can I sell it for? What will the public tolerate? Have I annoyed the retailers? How important are the retailers? These things all change in time. So I liken it to when you go in a museum, you see a great big white canvas with a red ball, and it says it's sold for $18 million. And your first thought is, well, I can do that. When you play a good game, your first thought is, well, I can do that. No. And you couldn't paint that painting either. <laughs> um, if you've got a passion for it, if you've got a great idea, if, you, if you're entertained by it, you have to pursue it. But my biggest recommendation, test it with strangers. Your friends and family, God bless them, they lie. They're yeah. so impressed that you did anything, that they give you an inflated positive response. You need strangers to throw bricks at it. Uh, that's how you hone it. That's how you get it better. That's how you discover if it actually is something people will buy. I agree with the bricks part. I think that's important for any business, right? Doing some market research. What, what do you do? tell people, though, who take these games too seriously? I want you to know, I caused that on purpose. Really? Um, <laughs> there is a psychology to it. There are two kinds of game players. There are competitive players. They want to win. And then there are people who just want to be entertained and have a good time. How do you make a game? that will allow for both. There's a real craft to this in most of my games. People play by the rules and play for score the first round. And then after somebody's won, now they just play the content. But I'll give you an example from the game Outburst, which is, can you name 10 cars rich people drive? I'm just giving you a topic. If you get all 10 answers, that's a very high response. And if you do that on every single topic, wow, you're really, but that's a flat line. I want you to be thrilled, and then I want you to be angry, and then I want you to be happy, and then I want you to be frustrated. I want you on an emotional roller coaster. It's way more fun than a merry-go-round. So that business of, of seeing a fight break out, sometimes it was intentional. I'll tell you what, Brian. So you have a new game, Boom Again, and you brought questions with you. So we're going to team up. So I guess it'll be Richard and me against Vadim and Sergey. They're younger, so their brains probably work better. But that's okay. <laughs> well, but, you, know, you know what? Now, one of the things you're about to discover, and I'll give you each a couple of questions and, and you'll you'll get a feel for Boom again. I've never, I've avoided doing trivia games because they were hard. And for this game, I redivided everybody's mental file cabinet. So instead of history and science, these categories are Things we heard, things we saw, things we learned in school, stuff we learned on the street. You know, mom didn't okay. teach me and I didn't learn at school. So now I'm going to I'm going to try and give you one team at a time a chance to answer some of these. Okay. Right. And 
Despite the age difference, I guarantee we will score. Let's start with the boys. Ready, guys? Okay. Um, we're ready, but we know you like to ruffle feathers, Brian, and we're twin brothers, and there might be a fight that breaks out. So let's <laughs> yeah. oh, I want to see that. We'll send everybody you know, to YouTube channel if that happens. You guys happens. look amazing when you lie. Okay. This is from Things We Heard. How many times did KC and the Sunshine Band sing the word shake before they sang your booty? Seven. Seven is right. And congratulations, Richard. I want to ask you and Elizabeth a basic question. We all loved I Love Lucy. Name three of the top, most memorable episodes. The Chocolate Factory. Always number one. The Candy Factory is always number one. Vita Vita Vegemin, where she gets drunk while filming a commercial. And Lucy stomps grapes. Oh, oh yeah. That's a classic. What, yeah. what you all just did is that head slap moment where an answer, even if you didn't get it, you're like, oh, my God, of course. Um, that's what we're looking for. That's what a good game should do. For the guys, let me try one more for you. Who was older, Elizabeth when she became queen or Freddie Mercury when he became queen? <laughs> oh, boy. Probably Freddie. I mean, Elizabeth was pretty young. Freddie Mercury was 24 um, and, and Elizabeth was actually 27. Oh, um, okay. but, but it's more about, it's less about the answer than it is about the question. Um, and that's the fun of a game. If, if we can take you to places you didn't think you were going, and, and I'm gonna, I wanna go back, I wanna try one more because I want Richard and Elizabeth to have real success. And I'm absolutely sure that I have a topic that you simply are going to get. Do you remember the original TV dinners? Yes. Yeah. Okay, name three of the original entrees for Swanson's TV dinners. Salisbury steak. Number one. Turkey and gravy yep. or something. That's correct. Gross like Tur that. Okay. And some sort of chicken, probably. Fried chicken. You got the three. I mean, the, wow, and, and, and when's so the, up right now. <laughs> when's, the, when's the last time you had reason to even think about Salisbury steak? Someone just needed to point you to that file drawer to get you to pull it out and have a smile about it. That's what a good game can do. That's what Boom Again is about. It's about going back to the experiences for baby boomers. Well, I'm having the time of my life, but we do have to take a commercial break and we'll be back with more of Brian Hirsch and Passage to Profit right after this. What are entrepreneurs' most valuable assets? Their passion and ideas. We can't protect your passion, but we can protect your ideas. Trust Gearheart Law to protect your ideas with premier patent, trademark, and copyright services. There's never been a better time to start your own business. Contact us at GearheartLaw.com. At Gearheart Law, we have years of experience protecting entrepreneurs' ideas and brands using patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at Gearheart Law, www.gearheartlaw.com. Don't let the wrong protection strategy ruin your business. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection and are licensed and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Contact Gearheart Law on the web at G-E-A-R-H-A-R tlaw.com together we can change the world this ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson now back to passage to profit once again richard and elizabeth gearhart and our special guest brian hirsch who develops games not only invented a number of games but has gotten them onto retail shelves and made them very popular with the general 
populace. We're going to go to the business end of how he did that. There's a real strong business aspect to that. How do you yeah. get them to where hundreds or millions of households are playing them? That's evolved over time. The world of computers has lowered the, the already uh, relatively low bar to entry. The truth is that most board games are tortured paper. They're a board and they're cards, and sometimes there's some plastic. But it wasn't so much about the making of the game, though you have to figure out, how do I deliver quality? How do I deliver value for money when someone doesn't know that they're going to have a good time? How do they open it and feel like this is worthwhile? That's one proposition and one threshold to cross. But if you succeed and you figure out what that should look like, and you figure out how the content and the gameplay mechanism work, now, how do you get it on the shelf at Walmart, Target? These are the major retailers, and then there's tons of small retailers. How do you get it there? Most entrepreneurs, but most inventors come up with an idea. They may or may not adequately protect it. They may or may not be smart enough to really understand what's in a license. But the danger is if they bring it out themselves, two things can happen, both of which are bad. First, they could fail. Now they've invested money, and I know a lot of people who took out a second mortgage to build 5,000 games and then wound up with 4,950 of them in the garage. That's a terrible burden for somebody. So you can fail, and that's a bad thing. And the other bad thing that can happen is you can succeed. Because when you succeed, now you've got to invest more to build more games and make sure that they keep selling. So this conundrum, just from a pure business standpoint, begins to weigh on people, and the answer is game companies, uh, Milton Bradley, Parker Brother, Western Publishing, Mattel, all of these companies existed for the purpose of doing the work that the average inventor is not prepared to do. They take on the burden of marketing. They take on the burden of production. They do the cost engineering. They do the marketing. These are really important aspects. So you ask them to do that for you and you get paid a royalty. It's not unlike guys who record music. The label pays for the recording studio, they pay for the band, they pay for your travel, and you get a piece of the sales. Same thing with games when you license them. That's the easy path to market. But once you're there, it becomes a game, no pun intended, of I want to see it on the shelf. Wait a minute, why is it still on the shelf? Oh, good, it's back off the shelf. Wait, why hasn't it been resupplied to the shelf? You start second-guessing that process. And sometimes the snow globe gets shaken so badly that you don't recognize the world in which you're working. I'll give you an example. First, it was game companies telling the retailers, this is what you're going to take this year, and this is how many pieces you're going to take. Then that turned around and Walmart said, no, this is the game I'm taking. This is the number of pieces that you're going to make, but you're only going to ship me so many, but be sure you have them in case I want more. So that paradigm was a major shift. Let's fast forward and see what the pandemic will do to that. Suddenly we have a supply chain nightmare. You can't get product out of China. The stores have ordered it and it's not coming in. And what are they supposed to sell? Wait a minute, people are staying home. This is a chance to sell them games. But there are no games. They're stuck in the supply chain. And who's going to set the pricing? Suddenly, and now this year, we're past the pandemic, we think. People are tired of playing at home with their kids. They'd like to go play with their friends. And now the stores have a glut of all those products that are finally arrived. 
So they say, stop, I'm not buying anything new. I got to get rid of all this old stuff and I'm going to mark it down to get rid of it. So you're entering a business where everything changes. And even though Amazon and the internet changed everything, yeah, you can still go out. You can do a direct-to-consumer e-commerce effort to launch a game, but you still have that problem. You could succeed or you could fail. At all times, this is still a business and vis-a-vis trademark and copyright and you can get ripped off. And then you have a whole different problem in terms of who do you chase? How do you chase? What's the cost of trying to protect your marks? And at least before the pandemic, I know a lot of people were using Kickstarter to get their games developed and going. But one thing that you say that I, Richard has spoken about before when we've been talking about things that helps a little bit for the game inventor with some of this is what you put in your license, what the contract for your licenses. And Richard has talked about that saying, you know, you can put stuff in there like you have to keep selling this. But there's this issue, little issue of bargaining power, right? So if you're licensing something to Disney, they hand you the license and say, sign it. And you either sign it or you don't. There may be a few places where you can tune it, but these are our terms and this is how you're going to do it. If it's a smaller company or more reasonable company, then you may be able to get some terms. But it really is important to get some type of legal professional who has experience with these contracts to review them. It's worth it because if you don't put the right things in there, there's too many loopholes, then you could end up having a lot of problems. And and then there's hidden pieces. And, and I discovered them early on where a company says, after seven years, we're no longer going to pay you a royalty. If it lasts that long, it succeeded because of us. So we just own it outright. Wow. And you have to say, no, if it's lasted that long, it's because it's a great game. Brian, it's really been amazing hearing from you and hearing about the game business. Passage to Profit with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Lisa Askley's Inventress, founder, CEO, and president of Inventing A to Z. I've been inventing products for over 38 years, hundreds of products later and dozens of patents. I help people develop products and put them on the market from concept to fruition. I bring them to some of the top shopping networks in the world. QVC, HSN, eVine Live, and retail stores. Have you ever said to yourself, someone should invent that thing? Well, I say, why not make it you? If you want to know how to develop a product from concept to fruition the right way, contact me, Lisa Askeles, the inventress. Go to inventingatoz.com, inventingatoz.com. Email me, lisa at inventingatoz.com. Treat yourself to a day chock full of networking, education, music, shopping, and fun. Go to my website, inventingatoz.com. Passage to Profit continues with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart. We have a really special guest, Brian Hirsch, founder of Hirsch Games. Elizabeth, it's your time to talk about your startups. I have two different projects going on. One of them is called Blue Streak. I rebranded it from Fireside and it's a video directory of remote businesses online. So I'm redoing the way directories are done because virtually all directories are location-based. So this will be the first directory. It's not only short videos and long videos, but it's also not location-based. So to be in this directory, you have to be able to work with anyone anywhere in the world. So kind of like what we're doing here, we've got the twins are in Mexico City, We've got Brian in LA. It's based on the new reality post-COVID because even though we're out of COVID, we hope, we're still all doing remote stuff, right? So 
we're never going to go back to where you have to meet your business coach in person. So this directory is based on business category. It's business to business. It's business services, not location-based. So it's a new paradigm for directories and it's also short videos. So that is Blue Streak. And right now I'm working on the website for that. Then my second newest effort to help me fund Blue Streak, but also to have to be a lot of fun, is called the Jersey Podcats. And Richard and I were joking, go back to the beginning of the show with the cognac, is Jersey, and I guess it wouldn't be New Jersey, I guess it'd be Jersey in England. Is Jersey going to come after me because I'm using Jersey in the name? But it's uh, I'm doing with my partner. But you live in Jersey, so oh, I should be New you're... Jersey though, not Jersey, Jersey. So yeah. oh, anyway, I think I'm okay. Um, I'm doing it with my partner. Anybody can sue anybody for anything in America, so just <laughs> but, keep that in mind. But Jersey's in England, so yeah. anyway, and well, anyway. They, they can sue too. Okay, well, please don't. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm doing it with my friend Danielle Woolley. We actually did not know each other before we decided to start this project together. It's a podcast about cats, but it's not your typical crazy cat ladies cat podcast. The reason that we decided to start it, it actually stemmed from a suggestion Richard had, which wasn't directly to be a podcast, but I adopted a kitten from Kentucky. He keeps scratching his face and we can't figure out why. I've tried so many different things and so many different professionals. And so Richard said, well, maybe you should try to join a group or find a group where you can talk about this kind of thing because the vets can't really figure it out yet. And I said, oh, you know what? I'll start a podcast. And the next day I met Danielle at a conference and she does cat rescue and loves, like she's even more passionate about cats than I am, if that's possible. Anyway, so we decided to start an interactive podcast where people can come on, people can call in, and we're just going to talk about cats. And it's especially like cats that have issues that nobody can seem to solve. And we're going to ask the community for answers. So it's going to be very interactive, but we're also going to do like fun cat stories and get little videos and stuff. So the Jersey podcast. So I do want to update on the trademark because as Brian mentioned for his games, the IP for this is the trademark. It is the brand. So I found a really cool image I wanted to use for our logo and I bought it from Adobe I may have to pay more if we start putting it on merchandise. And then Danielle's husband, who's very good with this kind of stuff, fixed it up, changed it a little and fixed it up for us to be exactly what we wanted. So the name, the Jersey Podcasts and the logo, I filed intent to use trademarks for. So if you're not using it yet, you can file that you want to because the logo is just so incredibly cute. And the name, everybody loves the name. And for you tech guys, you tech twins here, this was Richard's suggestion. We bought the Jersey Podcast URL as well to point to the Jersey podcast because we all know spell check always changes it, right? So we covered ourselves there. But I think the trademark and the branding is going to be super important here. So we have the intent to use filed on the two trademarks. And we do actually have our YouTube channel live and we have subscribers from all over the country. I made my kids do it. My daughter's in Hawaii. My son's in Maryland. <laughs> so we're a but, national podcast. But, but, but that was part of it because you you can get a state trademark or a national trademark, but to get a national trademark, you have to be selling or doing whatever across state lines. I guess I'm not selling. Right. That, you have but... to be engaged in activity across state lines. So did I bore everybody to tears yet? No, I mean, I think that's great. And I've heard your podcasts and they're absolutely off the charts, entertaining and enjoyable. So I'm sure it's going to be a big success Thank sharing you. that with our listeners. Thank you. So now I get to introduce... We've been talking about Vadim and Sergey, 
all show. And we do have this on YouTube. So listeners, if you want to see identical twins, it's, I don't know, for some reason, it's just so cool to see two people that look exactly like each other. I don't know why. <laughs> so they have school 16, which I reading this, I understand exactly what you're talking about. I think it's a really good idea. So if you want to start with that, and then we can go into your backgrounds in investment and teaching at New York University and all that stuff. So welcome. Thanks so much for having us. You know, the best way for me to describe school 16 is, you know, if you think about the work that Brian did, we just talked about starting a, a gaming company. If you've never done that before, how do you even go about doing it? Brian had his advantage of understanding contracts and knowing how to negotiate. Huge advantages in that business. For most people who are interested in doing something new, you need some advantage. You need some help. When Vadim and I were teaching at NYU, we saw a lot of people who were changing their careers, who wanted to start businesses. And almost never were they able to do this by themselves. And in, in, in fact, many people went to school because of that. And so we started looking at the market for people who are interested in new careers. And we saw that there was no real easy way to do that. So for example, if you want to get a job in tech, a lot of people now want to work remotely. They want to work for companies that pay well, that have very good benefits. So they're looking at companies like Google, Meta, you know, other organizations that are hiring and paying very well. And they're saying, how do I take part in this new economy? How do I update my skills to do so? Traditionally, the option was go to university. But unfortunately, that has become prohibitive for most people. And most people are not going to get into the top university you need to in order to get the network and the unfair advantage that you need to get into a new job that pays really well, six figures or above. And so we decided with School 16 to figure out the, the fastest path to these types of lucrative jobs to only teach the most relevant skills for people who want jobs in tech and to do it fully online so you don't have to spend tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars getting into debt just because you want to change your career and you want to update your skill set. And so that is what we do at School 16. We help people break into non-technical tech careers. You don't have to learn how to code. You can do it in a matter of months. And it doesn't really matter what your background is. We can identify whether you'll be successful in that. So do you have an example of a job? Like, let's say I don't want to have to learn how to code, but I like tech and I want to do something different. What would you suggest? Is there some kind of test I could take to see what kind of job I should get or just kind of look at your offerings? See, that's the problem. There's so much content out there online and maybe even career assessments you could take. But oftentimes people are left even more confused. So our approach and what we think really helps anybody, like probably Brian, you know, when you were starting your your different businesses, whether it's in real estate or, or building a game, you probably talk to people in the industry, right? You you talk to somebody that could do the market sure. research, whatever it is. So oftentimes talking to that human is actually way more beneficial than taking some kind of assessment or test online. And so that's the approach we take. You, you talk to a human, you talk to different mentors and professionals in tech that have done it themselves. Maybe they went from a nonprofit, maybe they were a teacher and they decided to make a career transition. I would say if anybody's thinking about any skills that they want to develop for jobs that have all sorts of different titles. It could be in product, it could be sales, it could be marketing, is communication skills, is skills of persuasiveness, right? And so the sales jobs, customer-facing jobs are going to be the lower-hanging fruit. Those are some of the titles somebody can look at just because you're going to be making money for these companies. So obviously, there's always going to be opportunities for somebody like you if you build out those skill sets. But there are all sorts of different non-technical roles that are operational, that are maybe not directly client-facing, that are also supporting the engineering teams. And there's more than half of those within most technology companies are non-technical roles. I'm very curious if I can just ask a question. Serge, when you are 
dealing with people. Do you find that YouTube has been a help or at some level has it been a hindrance? Because there's always a resource, but so often they're disparate and they don't quite tie together. That's a great question. And the answer is it's both. So as you said, Brian, when you were starting your company, you have to do the market research. You have to understand what you're getting into, in part because when you get into conversations with these professionals, you can't sound like a complete novice that hasn't done any research, doesn't know what they want, has no idea what's going on. So you have to start with that research. So the benefit of YouTube or even existing certifications like Google certificates is people play around with things. People take, you know, watch videos. They might take an online, you know, watch an online video course or something like that, or listen to a podcast like this to get a baseline of knowledge. But what typically happens is there's so much information that at some point you get stuck because you don't know which is the right path, especially if you don't have the context when you're coming from outside the industry. And so that's why talking to people that have done the same thing, you know, gone from being a teacher to getting into tech, gone from being in retail to getting into tech company or starting their own business is so critical because you can then start to get a sense of the reality of what these roles are like, the reality of whether you're going to succeed so that you can listen to your intuition and double down on what's going to work in terms of focus on developing your skill set and even targeting companies that are going to make you successful. So use YouTube to explore, use these different resources to go deep into particular topics, but make sure it's guided with insight because yeah. otherwise it's blue ocean out there. It's going to be very difficult. So we want to make sure that the person can connect with a human right away. So you apply to the program. We are selective, but your background doesn't really matter. Again, you could have been a teacher. You could have uh, been a, a contractor, You anything, a nonprofit sector. And we want to make sure you're talking to an admissions officer who has experience probably in multiple careers in tech where they can look at your background, see what skill sets you've already developed, and they can point you in the right direction in terms of our programs. Our programs are also designed to give people a background, a foundation. So tech is one of these things that's constantly changing. I think Brian was talking about earlier how even a market for games is constantly changing, right? The needs of the market are constantly changing. Same thing with tech. And so you can't just say, okay, I'm going to study this one very specific thing and it's going to be useful forever. It's just not possible. And also, you can't enter the field without having the context of how technology companies operate, how they make business decisions, how people communicate within these companies to make innovation happen. And so for our students, we want to make sure we give them a foundation because you can say, okay, I like marketing. But if you don't know what actually is involved in the marketing role day to day, you might actually hate it, right? Maybe there's another role that's a better fit for you. So we want to make sure that, and this is what happens in the first half of our program, our students are getting a foundation, not only so that they get a better understanding of what they should double down on studying, right? What they actually like and where their skills uh, and their passions align, but also what organization works like end to end so that they can be valuable in any role they pursue because they already know, okay, hey, I can go to this department for resources. I can go to that department for resources, and I'm going to become the most valuable person on your team because I have that foundational knowledge. So I'm going to take the low-hanging fruit. So let's say I'm really good at sales, but I've been doing sales in the chemical industry or something. Now I want to do sales for tech. How much do you have to know about the product you're trying to sell? especially if you're in a sales or any kind of customer success, customer support role, you have to become the expert. And one of the pieces of advice we give to our students when they start targeting companies is to become the expert in that particular product. For example, for CRM, you know, customer relationship management software, people might be familiar with companies like Salesforce or HubSpot or other organizations out there that have that software. There's demo and free versions available out there. You're not gonna become an expert by using the demo, but you play around with it for a few hours, 
you're already going to understand the value and know more about the product than 90% of the population that has never heard the word CRM. And now you can talk about it intelligently. Hey, I know that CRM software is designed to help sales teams manage their sales pipeline and collect and keep all the customer data in there. And I know how to leverage that technology and convince people of that value. You know, you're not going to know that until you play around with it, until you do your own research, but that doesn't require you to get a degree in tech at all. In fact, that degree in tech from a traditional university is probably not going to teach you anything about CRM. So targeting the right companies, if you have opportunities where your friend, for example, has a CRM company and they're hiring, becoming an expert and demonstrating to that person that even though you might be from outside the industry, you can learn quickly and you can have that level of expertise is going to be the first way to convince that you're going to be productive in that role. So you need to be an expert, but you can't be an expert about everything, right? And there's new technologies coming out all the time. So let's say you're really good at pharmaceutical sales, as an example. You can become enough of an expert to land that opportunity in tech. And then, of course, you learn on the job. You learn the pain points of the customer. You learn the features of the specific CRM you're going to sell, whatever it is. That stuff can be learned on the job, but you just have to learn enough yourself to be dangerous and to prove that you can understand the pain points of the customers during their interview process if you're changing, let's say, industries altogether, but you're already in sales. So the CRM example is CRMs are something that marketing people can use who don't know how to code. So really, anybody that really wants to should be able to learn enough about it to be able to sell it. Brian, do you have any thoughts or comments on what you've heard so far? Yeah, I think that one of the things that strikes me, it was something that Vadim said, was, and he didn't use these words, so forgive me, but the notion of curiosity. You have to be curious beyond what you know. And that's basically what you're saying. You can switch careers, you can switch jobs, but you've got to be at least curious to dig in to find out what you're getting into. That's exactly right. You have to be curious and you have to be willing to fail at it, right? Be willing for it to not feel great if you're doing research and you're reading terminology about, you know, let's say engineering or whatever it is, and you don't understand anything. That's okay. As long as you're starting, as long as you're pushing through, you're actually going to do way more than many other people. You're going to be in the top 1% really. And I think a lot of people don't realize that is so many people will give up pretty quickly or they'll you know, hit a fork in the road. They won't know what to do. They won't know how to ask for help or whatever it is. If you can just persevere, if you can just take your curiosity and move it forward just another inch, you're already going to be ahead of the pack and you're going to have a higher chance of success. I do think that failure is inevitable for all of us, but I think it's how you manage it. And I found that in my career and people I know, if you can adopt the attitude of sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. There are new jobs in tech right now. I mean, I've thought if I really needed money right now, I would go learn all the new Google changes and teach that to people <laughs> because mm -hmm. the whole Google reviews thing and owning your page is like so much more important than it was a couple of years ago, right? So there are constantly new jobs and new ways to make money in tech. Are you guys constantly looking at those and introducing people to those? We are, but if you think about it, and this kind of goes back to their curiosity point, you can become an expert in almost anything, right? So let's take crypto as an example. I don't want to go too much into it, but obviously it's been in the news a lot lately. Um, I've, a I've lot of a, people I've got a headache already. So. But a lot of people became experts in crypto all of a sudden, right? There's no degrees in crypto. You you became expert by listening to hundreds of hours of podcasts, by you know going to crypto meetups or whatever it is. By losing money sometimes. By yourself. losing money, <laughs> exactly. That's actually a good way to learn. It hurts. But the thing is, once you go through that process, fundamentally, that can happen forever, right? New computer programs 
programming languages. AI is growing at a really quick rate. There's going to be new disciplines that you can go deep into any time. And so, of course, the way that we think is the best way to teach that is by having experts from these disciplines. And there's always going to be new experts and getting that direct guidance live in a classroom setting, which is why we think pre-recorded content can only take you so far or a self-paced course can only take you so far. And it's not evergreen, right? It's going to change all the time, which is why this stuff has to be delivered live. But the foundational skills, the transferable skills, the communication skills, the operational skills that you can develop, that's actually a lot more important. And then you can apply all these different specializations or or disciplines and insight into that. It's actually, if you think about your college classes, uh, even today, uh, it's it's very similar to call it what college students are experiencing to what they did 40 years ago. Who was the best professor, the most fun professor that you can remember? Well, they were probably a practitioner. Maybe they were a business person. You know, if I had a professor, if I wanted to take a, for example, a supply chain or marketing class, I would much rather have a professor like Brian than someone that studied case studies on supply chain or marketing. And so we wanted to take basically that feeling. If you could imagine all of your teachers being those practitioners, being the people that are executing on this every day, then the knowledge that you're learning is always going to be fresh. It's not going to be some curriculum that was developed five or 10 years ago. It's going to be something that is top of mind and relevant to the industry today. You guys actually have amazing backgrounds in business. You're professors at NYU, New York University, and also investors, venture investors. So what is the atmosphere like right now? What we're seeing in the market now is that later stage investments uh, have slowed down a little bit. And very early stage investments are actually very active. What I mean by early stage is, you know, people that are in their first couple years of the business. It's actually still very active, but you have to prove yourself a little bit more, right? Because the when there's an economic downturn, venture capital investors actually get their money from other investors called limited partners. We don't have to get into too much in the detail here, but imagine that, you know, universities, big banks, you know, big companies, they're giving the money for these venture capital investors to find smart entrepreneurs to give that money to so that it you know grows 5 10 100 2000 times right but when the economy is not doing so well they become a little bit more risk averse as well right they're not going to be investing in as many companies that are not proven and so they want to see you have some proof in the market that what you're doing is going to work yes you're right that most of that money is going to companies that are either technology companies or technology enabled, right? But if I am a venture capitalist and I'm looking at, you know, to give the example again of a gaming company, I would want to invest in somebody who has some unfair advantage, right? If I'm going to be investing in someone that wants to sell games through Target, I'm only going to be wanting to look at people who have relationships or understand how to sell through Target and Walmart like Brian does. But if I'm talking to, you know, a 22-year-old who has never done that before, I'm going to say, okay, well, let me see, what is your expertise? Uh, do you have a huge following on TikTok? Are you really good at online marketing? Um, do you have some unfair advantage where you can develop this product, whether it's technology product or a physical product like what Brian works with, so you can distribute it in a very different way? And so as a venture capitalist, you look for that unfair advantage and you look for a large market opportunity. And even in an economic downturn like right now, actually, sometimes there's even more market opportunities in economic downturns. And so venture capitalists still write checks. They might just do it a little bit more carefully. They do invest in other kinds of businesses. But when you're looking at venture capital specifically as an asset class or as an investor type, 
they're typically in, interested in technology or something that is powered by technology. For example, we're an online education company. Um, all of our classes are live and online. Uh, are we sitting there writing code and writing software and selling that software? No, but we're using technology to reach a very large market, right? There's millions of people that want to get jobs in tech. Millions of people are not going to get into Harvard or get into NYU or Stanford, right? And so by using the internet, by using the mobile web, for example, we can reach those people and we're technology enabled. So typically, because of the nature of how venture capitalists invest, which is they want, you know, not like a regular market return 10, 20% a year, they want a hundred times return in five to 10 years, right? They need a market that's big enough and they need a medium that can get a product to people at scale. And so for that reason, most of the opportunities that venture capital investors specifically look at is either technology opportunities or technology enabled in some way. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So if I can just go to Blue Streak for just a second. So it's an online video directory, but there's a lot of programming that needs to be done to make it scalable. And actually, our son is helping with that, which is really great. But there are just okay. so many things I want to automate because, I mean, you can have people do it, but I think to really get it going, it has to have a lot of automation through programming. Remote is great because it gives us connections with people. Like, we couldn't have done this show if we had to have you all come into New York, into the studio like we used to do. So, so this mm -hmm. is great. But I do miss the physical connection. There may need to be some balance for that in some ways. And there's a way to create that balance. Like, for example, we have students from all over the world. And then the more students we have, the more we'll have from the same cities. Like, we actually already have a bunch of people from L.A. We have a bunch of people from Mexico City, a bunch of people from New Orleans, as an example. Well, what you can do is have a community manager that also sets up offline events for people that want to come on your own schedule, right? If you want to come and meet other people, other alumni, other classmates in person from your city, you can still do that. But we believe that education has to be online because, again, people need that flexibility of, okay, I got to focus, I got to sit down. And creating the limitation of going to a physical classroom will just give people reasons not to do something like that. So let them meet together. Let them experience the in-person stuff uh, as a supplement to uh, the experience online. Different people learn in different ways. And that is something that actually online education is really well suited for. You know, you can have different mediums in one learning experience. One could be an online meeting one-on-one -on -one with a professional. Another could be watching a recording. Uh, another could be seeing a screen share of how somebody uses a certain piece of technology and then going in and applying it yourself by working on a project using that piece of technology yourself. So now all of a sudden, you, I just named four different ways of learning. Someone will uh, learn more in one of those mediums and another person will learn more in another. There's a bigger advantage than sitting in a classroom and just being talked at. A lot of people actually don't learn well that way. That whole screen share and watching how somebody does it on their screen, that's what works for me. It's really been great, guys. Uh, we love what you're doing with School 16. And you are listening to Passage to Profit with Richard and Elizabeth Gearhart and our special guest, Brian Hirsch. We'll be back with more right after this. There's never been a better time to start your own business. The opportunities are infinite and only limited by your imagination and enthusiasm. At Gearhart Law, we believe the most successful companies all have one thing in common. They start with a solid foundation first. Gearhart Law has years of experience protecting entrepreneurs, ideas, and brands using patent 
patent, trademark, and copyright protection. So if you have a new consumer product, a new software application that you're planning to build or sell, or a brand or company name that you want to protect, contact the experts at www.gearheartlaw.com. Our professionals will create a custom strategy designed to fit your needs and your budget. All of our attorneys are passionate about protection, licensed, and qualified to represent you before the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Don't start your project without calling us first. Visit GearHeartLaw.com. Together, we can change the world. Visit G-E-A-R-H-A-R-T-L-A-W.com. This ad has been read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Now more with Richard and Elizabeth. Passage to Profit. Our special guest today, Brian Hirsch, who develops games, and we've been playing his games, and it's been really fun, and we're going to play some more. I love the opportunity to throw out some Boom Again questions, because Baby Boom was full of really interesting stuff. Some of it's very memorable, some of it seems silly, but I'll give you a few examples. And this is wide open for all four of you. In the game Monopoly, what are the three ways to get out of jail? Get out of jail, free card. Pay $200, I think it is. It may be in, with inflation. I think it's 50 <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> A Snake Eyes, I think, where you roll the same uh, on every day. There it is. You have to roll doubles. Oh, okay. Um, oh, okay. All right. So we all remember that kind of stuff. Now, let's, let's try something that's just from the absurd section of the game. What is the seventh word in the Meow Mix jingle? Yeah. <laughs> it's the only word. <laughs> so what the game really does is it gets you to laugh. It gets you, I mean, it, everyone likes to walk away from a game saying, I had a good time playing, but it, who says I'd laugh? So the way we can close this out, and it's the perfect closing. Everyone remembers the dating game with Jim Lane at the very end when he got up there with the final contestants. Imitate the way they signed off at the end of the show. I can't remember. I can't remember. It's that big kiss. Oh, oh yeah, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. You, so you do remember. Yes, you do. Well, once you told us. Anyway, it sounds like a really fun game. So our guest was Brian Hirsch, and he spells his last name H-E-R-S-C-H, founder of Hirsch Games. And you can find Boom Again at boomagain.com. And as you see, we've been playing it. It is really fun and it does make you laugh and makes you think. One of the things we did for quality, because baby boomers want quality, the tokens in the game are a real skate key and a real dog tag. There's even a real roach clip. So <laughs> this is not your usual game. But it's legal now, at least what, here in New Jersey. What's, so. <laughs> what's a roach clip? <laughs> so then we had Vadim and Sergey, presenters of School 16, and their website is school16.co. What's really cool about what they're doing is they're figuring out what all the new jobs related to tech are and helping people figure out how they can get those jobs if they're looking to change careers. And, and they have mentors and live professors too. So school16.co. Before we go, I'd like to thank the Passage to Profit team, Noah Fleischman, our producer, Alicia Morrissey, our program director, and Mark Wilson, our syndication manager. Our podcast can be found tomorrow anywhere you find your podcast. Just look for the Passage to Profit show. And don't forget to like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And remember, while the information during this program is believed to be correct, never take a legal step without checking with your legal professional. This is Richard and Elizabeth Gerhart. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next week.